If you have Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. This week, a complaint was lodged about last Sunday's sermon. The complaint was is that it was a real downer um, and that things seem hopeless. My initial response was that any sermon that covered what we looked at, Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane while his disciples slept, Jesus being betrayed, Jesus being arrested, his disciples abandoning him, Peter denying him, Jesus being on trial, it would be uh, difficult to be a little bit upbeat, even if we know how things will turn out. But as I thought about it some more, I cannot help but wonder if this part of Jesus' life is so familiar to us that we tend to view it as a series of boxes that needed to be checked off. That somehow Jesus had a checklist for what was to happen. Now, the person who lodged a complaint certainly doesn't think that way. Uh, but it's almost as though we imagine, because we know the story, you know, praying in the garden that what was going to happen wouldn't happen, check. Betrayed, check. Put on, or abandoned by disciples, check. Put on trial and false witnesses testify, check. Peter denies him, check. And such a view, though I don't think we would ever admit to seeing things that way, fails to appreciate as we should the humanity of Jesus. As we have gone through the Gospel of Mark, I have been struck by the mystery of the Incarnation more than ever. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. And the word mystery, as it's used in the New Testament, means something different than what we mean. It points to something that was hidden and has now been revealed. But I would argue that for all that has been revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, there's still so much we do not know. One thing we do know is that he was human. So when we come to the events, the night before his death, and then the day of his death, we should appreciate them in the light of his humanity. Last Sunday, I asked at the beginning of the sermon, have you ever been betrayed by a close friend? Have you ever had someone who you thought was a friend not stand up for you when you were in great need? They acted like they didn't know you and turned away from you. Have you ever had friends abandon you when you needed them the most? The resulting pain is described at the end of Psalm 88 by Heman the Ezraite. You have taken my companions and my loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. One reading in the ESV has, darkness has become my only companion. The common English Bible has, my, own, my friend is darkness. My only friend is darkness. And in Peterson's The Message, the only friend I have left is darkness. The night when Jesus was betrayed and denied and abandoned, he was left with darkness. The horror and the degradation of the cross usually is what comes to our mind when we think of the passion of Jesus. But we should not blithely or in a coldly clinical way simply read or discuss about the betrayal, the denial, the abandonment that he suffered that night. Jesus was human. And on that night, darkness was his only friend. Now we come to Mark 15. 
and we need, it tells us of the death of Jesus, and we need to recognize that Mark does not tell us everything. We don't find all the information of the Gospels found in the Gospel of Mark. You may be familiar with what are known as the seven words on the cross, or the seven last words of Jesus. But I don't know if you know this, that in Matthew and Mark, we find, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will see that today in verse 34. In Luke, we find, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You only find those in Luke. And then in John, uh, when Jesus speaks to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then to John, behold your mother. And then I thirst. And then finally, it is finished. We take these all together and they make up the last, the seven last words of Jesus. But in Mark, we find only the one. And this should be a reminder that the gospel of Mark is not complete. It doesn't tell us everything that Jesus did during his ministry. Uh, It is not intended to be exhaustive, which again should remind us that the Bible is not exhaustive. It is sufficient. It doesn't tell us everything there is to know. It tells us that which we need to know. So today, as we come to chapter 15, the last hours of the life of Jesus, we must do so carefully and soberly. Verse number one of Mark 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. At first glance, this is somewhat surprising because they had already decided that Jesus was worthy of death. In chapter 14, verse 64, you have, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Okay. But no, now they've reached another decision. They've already decided this guy needs to die. Um, but now they're going to give him to the Romans. They're going to let the Romans put him to death. That is the decision that the Sanhedrin, the high court, the supreme court of the Jews has reached. The Romans alone had the authority to execute people. And if you get the Romans to do it, then the Romans get blamed for killing Jesus. A bit about Pilate. He was the fifth procurator of Samaria and Judah under the authority of Syria's legate or governor. Um, We have a lot of reports, historical reports about this man. Uh, Agrippa, King Agrippa, wrote to Caligula that Pilate was inflexible, merciless and obstinate, who repeatedly inflicted punishment without previous trial, who committed many acts of cruelty. Luke 13.1 tells us of one of these acts of cruelty. Uh, There were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. They were sacrificing, and Pilate's like, yeah, why don't we sacrifice you as well? One thing that seems clear from the various reports is that Pilate exercised very little common sense in dealing with problems between the Jews and the Romans. They were in charge, the Jews weren't, and so he wasn't that, he wasn't that careful, that thoughtful in how he dealt with the Jews. In a real sense, he's the perfect fall guy for this death. He has the authority, he doesn't appreciate the, men, the tension of the situation, He doesn't seem to mind killing Jews, and nobody likes him. He's the perfect guy. Let's hand him over to Pilate. There's something else to remember. As they're going toward Jerusalem, Jesus makes a series 
of announcements and that he is going to die. And the second time he does this is in chapter 10. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the high priest or the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. So they send Jesus to Pilate and now he is in front of Pilate. Verse number two, are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say. This is really surprising because up to this point, Jesus is generally silent. And after this, he will be silent. He won't speak again. But the question is a bit surprising because the chief priests ask him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Uh, No one ever said anything about being the king of the Jews. Uh, The Sanhedrin, the chief, the high priest asked a religious question. Pilate is asking a political question. And so I have no doubt that that, in fact, is what the Sanhedrin did. It's like, if we tell Pilate, this guy's guilty of blasphemy, it's like, what does that mean to me? That's nothing to me. But if you say he claims to have political authority, that he is the king of the Jews, then Pilate will have to act. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. I would say no doubt one was being the king of the Jews. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. We are reminded of the passage uh, from Isaiah, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. We shouldn't overlook the last part of verse number five. Pilate was amazed. Think about it. Here is a man who is being accused falsely, and I think Pilate knows this, being accused falsely of all these things, and Jesus doesn't say anything. It's not a typical response. I mean, if you're accused of something and falsely, the natural reaction is to say, no, I never said that. I never said those things. But Jesus is silent. Now in verses 6, 7, and 8, we're given sort of a background to what's going to happen next. There is a custom. Look, if you would, at verse 6. Now, it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what they usually did. This is background material for the readers, probably in Rome, in Italy. They're not familiar with this practice. I remember growing up in the Philippines that every Christmas the president would give certain pardons. It was sort of like a Christmas gift. This is Passover. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was the custom that sort of as a sign of favor, the Roman authority would in fact release somebody. They have somebody in prison who is a murderer, who is a political prisoner. He's an insurrectionist. uh, And this is a man who is going to be executed unless Pilate pardons him and lets him go. So the crowd comes to him and says, listen, we want you to do what is the custom. We want you to release somebody to us. So I think Pilate thinks this is it. This is his way out. Verse 9, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate knows he's being played. 
He knows that the chief priests are playing. He doesn't like it. And so he sort of tries to provoke them. The king of the Jews, you want me to release him? He knows that this will just make them angry. But the chief priests know what they're doing. And they will, in fact, in the end, win this game. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The chief priests stir up the crowd. As we saw when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, people thought, oh, this is the second coming of Judas Maccabeus. He's going to destroy the Romans. He didn't do that. And so when the chief priests begin to rile them up, it works and they want Jesus to be crucified. Let the murderer go and kill this guy that we thought was the hope of Israel. You need to put him to death. Crucifixion was the supreme penalty for a particular kind of criminal, one who was guilty of sedition. Crucifixion was a method of displaying people in the most cruel circumstances possible to demonstrate publicly to the world, we're in charge. Just in case you didn't know, the Romans are in charge. The, the purpose was not simply to kill someone. You know, you could cut his head off. I mean, it's a lot quicker. The purpose of this punishment was to dehumanize. In addition to the physical pain and shame of being naked before the world, the victim was deliberately dehumanized to the point of being unrecognizable. It almost not be recognized as being a human being. The person on the cross became an object for the people to vent their sadistic impulses, being allowed to say anything they wanted to that object because the person ceases to be a person, he becomes an object. And people can, in fact, and that's what we will see in a few minutes, vent venom against this person. One who was once considered human is now merely an object. This is what the crowd is calling for. There's real irony here. They hated the Romans. And the act of crucifixion was in fact saying, we're in charge, the Romans are in charge, and the Jews hated that they were occupied and controlled by the Romans. And now they want the Romans to do what they do best, and that is to kill people and to crucify this man. Pilate wants to know what has he done? You know, what, what is his crime? Why have you asked me to crucify this man? But they won't let up, and so Pilate gives in. He wants to satisfy the crowd. So before you crucify, because the person will hang there for a while, go ahead and flog them, have them start bleeding already, and then crucify them. Now the crucifixion, verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. 
And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. There are things that happen before the crucifixion. And remember, crucifixion is, has the purpose of degrading a person. Well, that begins even before they nail someone to the cross. They mock him. These are not Jews doing this. These are the Roman soldiers. They put a purple robe on him as though he's royalty. They put a crown on him, but it's made out of thorns. They hail him as king of Jews, and they fall on their knees before him as though to say, you are the king. Then physically, they attack him, beating him on the head with the crown of thorns, striking him, spitting on him. And then when they've had their fun, they take off the, the purple robe, put his own clothes on him, and they take him out to be put to death. Verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. As best we can tell, normally a criminal was, in fact, forced to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion, unless the cross was already there. Uh, We're not told this here, but we're told elsewhere that Jesus was unable to do so. He has been through the night of darkness, and now he has been flogged, he's been beaten, He's been mocked and humiliated. Uh, So they grabbed somebody, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in modern-day Libya on the coast. He was probably there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for Passover. That's why he's in Jerusalem. So they have him carry the cross. By the way, he's identified as the father of Alexander and Rufus, and Rufus is mentioned by name in Romans 16. And if Mark wrote his gospel for the church in Rome, then people know, in fact, who Rufus is, and his dad is Simon of Cyrene. Verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. A written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 28, and the scripture was fulfilled, which said he was counted with the transgressors. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so, you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may, we may now see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Things to think about. Uh, what struck me as I read this passage is the place of the Old Testament. Uh, you know, later we will see that Jesus was offered sour wine. And that's usually what we think of. We're not familiar with the idea of him being offered wine with myrrh. Uh, myrrh makes wine bitter but it has the purpose of being a form of anesthetic it lessens the pain it dulls the senses and so it is an almost an act of kindness and it's been suggested that the women who were there are the ones who offered it they are offering him wine with myrrh so that he will not suffer as much and he refuses The soldiers divide up his clothing, cast lots. 
Psalm 22, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. He was crucified between two criminals, Isaiah 53, numbered with the transgressions. Then the inscription, the charge against him, the king of the Jews. This is Pilate's revenge against the religious people who painted him into a corner. They got the best of him. Verse number 10, knowing that it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. In John's account, in John 19, we read, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. Not only is Jesus nailed to the cross, but so is this indictment. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I'm not changing it. You guys played me. This is sort of his getting back at them. So Jesus is crucified. Simple, short sentence, and they crucified him. He is nailed to an instrument of torture, completely helpless and at the mercy of sadistic, sadistic, I'm sorry, sadistic torturers and mocking passers-by. As one author put it, here we find three men pinned up on crosses like insects, exposed to the mockery of the passerby as it was a ritual of humiliation. The purpose was to degrade him, to dehumanize him, and to humiliate him. In addition to the physical pain and the shame of naked exposure, the victim was deliberately dehumanized to the point of being unrecognizable. As I said earlier, he became an object. Those on a cross became an object for the people to vent their sadistic impulses on. We're reminded again of of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was an object for people to let loose their cruel impulses. There are at least three, three categories here. First of all, people just walking by, those who pass by. So you, are going to, you who are going to destroy the temple, which Jesus never said, it's a false accusation, come down from the cross and save yourself. And then from the religious leaders, something that they had asked for over and over again, we want a sign. Give us a sign and we will believe. Come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Jesus never gave them a sign and he doesn't here as well. And then you have the third group and those the two men who are crucified with him. They also heaped insults on him. This third group, I think I, I, I can almost forgive or understand. In their agony, who knows what they're saying? Do they know what they're saying? They are so angry, they are going, they're dying. They heap insults on him. Luke tells us, in fact, that one turned and asked that the Lord would remember him and his kingdom. And then Jesus dies, verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those standing near heard this and they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The, temple of the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The timeline is this. Jesus is crucified at nine in the morning. It's the third hour. And then from 12 noon, the ninth, uh, sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. The night before, darkness was Jesus' only friend, but here, darkness is judgment. It's something we find over and over again in the Old Testament. In Amos 5, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. How long will you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It is interesting, but what happened between 12 o'clock noon and 3 o'clock, we are not told except that darkness was over the whole land. We are told in the epistles that he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that he became a curse for us. Again, from Isaiah 53, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted, as we sang in the hymn today. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It was a time of great darkness, which God's wrath fell upon his son. God's judgment fell on Jesus of Nazareth. At three o'clock around that time, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the third time, by the way, that Mark has used Aramaic, and then he has to translate it for the readers because they don't know Aramaic. Uh, When he healed, or when he raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead, Talitha Kumi, his daughter arise, and then when he healed the man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, he said, Ef Fata, which means be opened. And each time, Mark has to give the translation, and he does here as well. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, opening line to Psalm 22. The rest of the verse reads, Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? The reactions to his crying out varied. Those standing nearby said, oh, he's, he's calling out for Elijah. One man got a sponge uh, and dipped it in wine, sour wine, and uh, wanted to give something to Jesus to drink. And then said, you know, just leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And then verse number 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus has died. 
Something happens in the temple. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. That is the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, from the rest of the temple, from the priest, from the people. That which represented the very presence of God, now the curtain has been torn. We read in Hebrews, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, only the high priest could go in. Now we can go in by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. That is the moment that Jesus died, Jesus opened the way for us to come into the presence of God. There was a centurion there. We assume that he was in charge of the whole proceedings. When he heard Jesus cry out and saw him die, he says, surely this man was the son of God. What he means is not clear. A Roman probably did not believe in Jehovah or Yahweh. But it was clear that there was something different about this man, Jesus. It set him apart from all others. And he comes to the conclusion, this man is unique. This man must be the Son of God. To wrap this up, um, why did the Jews have Jesus crucified? I mean, the Romans did it, but why did the Jews insist on this? Um, next week in our reading from the New Testament, we'll read about Stephen being stoned to death. Uh, in John chapter 8, a woman caught in adultery and people are ready to stone her. The men are ready to stone her. Why, why crucifixion? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. One is you get to blame the Romans for this. Uh, by the way, ever since Adam and Eve, we've always blamed somebody else. You know, did you eat of the fruit? It's my, the woman you gave me. It's actually your fault because you gave me the woman. Then the woman, did you do? It's the serpent. We've always blamed somebody else. They want to wash their hands of any guilt in this matter. I think they also want a degrading death. They don't simply want this man to die. They want him to be degraded and humiliated. And ever since Cain... People have been killing each other. Not always in degrading ways, but in many ways, we treat each other as objects. A statistic. Not as those made in the image of God. And so here in this passage, we come to Jesus the man, the suffering Savior. We should fall on our knees and give thanks that he gave his life that we might have life. And going to the cross was not simply another box to be checked off. Yeah, handed over to the Gentiles, check. Flogged, checked. Put to death, check. No. This happened. This was real. And Jesus suffered. Should never doubt that. But he did it for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, forgive us when this story becomes so familiar to us that we lose sight of the pain, the abandonment, the hours of darkness at which judgment fell on Jesus. 
we who have been the recipients of his sacrifice, I fear we may in fact take it for granted. The wonder of the incarnation, God in the flesh, we see in Jesus of Nazareth, but we do not fully comprehend it. Sometimes we want to make him more divine and less human to somehow mitigate his suffering. But he was human, 100% human, and he suffered. And he did so in our place. May we be deeply and profoundly humbled by this truth. At a time when we hated God, Jesus gave his life for us. When we were enemies, you loved us. As we think of the religious leaders and their hatred, their vileness, how they mocked, how they handed him over to be put to death, may we look in the mirror and recognize that at times we find this in our own hearts. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Forgive us when we do not do so. We thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. That Thrive Church LA is with us. We're grateful for that. As we leave this place today, may your spirit and your grace go with us. As we walk through the world in this coming week, may we have a sense of your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.